a film podcast this is brian dan's here with me hey brian tradition i like traditions yeah this is a monumental episode in a couple ways for one it's number 150 150 of you know the official episodes that are about movies yeah we had a few specials in there for one reason or another but according to the record books this is 150 a milestone. Yes. And as you said, it's a tradition because every Christmas season, which it now is, we cover a variety of adaptations of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol from 1843, which means this is the 180th anniversary this year. Wow. So a lot of things lining up, a lot of things falling into place. And we always talk about four different versions. That's just how it's panned out. This is the fourth time we've done so. So we've got, like, powers at work. Four squared. Who'd even knew there were 16 Christmas Carol adaptations? And yet I feel like we've only done the tip of the iceberg. There's so goddamn many of them out there. Right, and every year there's more. We're just scratching the surface. Every time I've brought these to the table with kind of a sub-theme that ties them together. So... Our first one back in 2020 was all musicals. Then the goal in the next year was all non-musicals, although there were some songs in Rich Little. Then last year it was all Christmas carols that use casts of licensed characters. So it was the Looney Tunes and the Flintstones and what else? Barbie. Barbie. I forget the last one. Mickey's Christmas Carol. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And the unifying factor this time is that they all have more contemporary settings than the original, which also would have applied, I guess, to Looney Tunes last year. But it updates it. It's no longer 1843. That's the rule. So for all the ones that we're talking about today, that's true. And the ones I selected are Spirited, the Apple TV Plus Pro, whatever they call their streaming service, original from 2022. Scrooged from 1988, starring Bill Murray. It's Christmas, comma, Carol, <laughs> the 2012 Hallmark movie. And Carol for Another Christmas, the Cold War... UN propaganda piece written by Rod Serling for that organization in 1964, if I didn't say. So, Dan, did you get a chance to watch all these? I did, yeah. And it's a very diverse batch this year. <laughs> yeah, a lot of variety. Yeah. 
I debated midweek changing things up because after I watched It's Christmas Carol, Amazon queued up Carol's Christmas. <laughs> they can't keep getting away with it. And then I found out there's also one called A Carol Christmas. <laughs> so we almost had a four film slate of just Christmas carols where the protagonist is a woman named Carol. <laughs> but I thought I'd mix it up a little more than that. Maybe next year. Yeah, I got some thinking to do. We're... It's a deep well, but what's the sub-theme going to be? The next sub-theme. How many sub-themes of a Christmas carol can there even be? <laughs> I imagine the next one would be like episodes of shows that used the setup. Mm. Okay. So the order that I just listed them in was kind of random, but it's the order that I watched them in. So Dan, did you watch them that way also? Yep. Spirited, Scrooged, It's Christmas Carol, and Carol for Another Christmas. That was my order. In our chat, Facebook Messenger, or Discord, or whatever we're using these days, Dan and I, I guess it's Facebook Messenger because that's where it applies, that if a certain thing evokes many different emotions, we call that an all six because you could hit it with a like, you could hit it with a love, you could hit it with a angry, you could hit it with a sad. And that's the way I feel about It's Christmas, comma, Carol. <laughs> that's an all six title. All six reacts. Yeah, I'm going to pull up. What are the six reacts? I think you got them all. You got the heart. You got the haha. Oh, you can't forget the wow. The wow is important, too. Sad, angry, thumbs up, thumbs down. So if something simultaneously evokes all six of those emotional reactions, then it's an all six moment. So let's dig in. We got a lot on our plate today. Four movies. They were all feature length. I thought at least the Rod Serling one would be shorter, but no, they're all pretty, pretty much around 90 minutes. But before we do that, it is episode 150. We'll probably do some dedicated spectacular soon where we dig into the statistics, but that's a lot of episodes, Dan. More than three years we've been doing this. Yeah, we tend to do one every week, so you know it's about 50 weeks in a year. Multiply that by three. We're past three years. We've had some breaks stretch out to a little longer than a week and, and so on. So it's been, what, three years and two months or something like that? Yeah, man, that's uh, it's a lot of talking about movies. Um, I need to we'll pull up the list and see how many actual things we are that we've discussed. But we got to be getting close to 200 total things discussed because some episodes we talk more than one movie. Oh, yeah, we're over 200, at least according to our, our tracking documents. Gotcha. According to our spreadsheet, we're at 236 currently. Oh, my gosh. Things that we've assigned ratings to. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll do a little more reflection, but it's been a awesome year for the podcast, both in terms of we've had a few more listeners, we've had more engagement on the Discord, come join us at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com, and a lot of other fun stuff going on. Oh, right, it's Spotify wrapped season, so you got some info from Spotify, right? That's right, yeah. And, and Podbean, which is where we aggregate it, yeah like 27 countries or something have listened. Yeah, something like that. Global reach. You know, we should be talking to each other, Brian. Not fighting. We we stop talking, we start fighting, Dan. 
It will become relevant by the end of this episode. Yeah, little Rod Serling joke there. You'll get it. But yes, I was most curious about Spirited, which, to be fair, has previously been the subject of a Buzzed On Movies episode. But I, I did have it on my radar when it was coming out. I didn't have Apple TV Plus until just recently, but I did subscribe for a class, so I had it ready to go. And that's the one that I decided to queue up first. I'd seen Scrooged before this week, but none of the other ones had I seen. What about you, Dan? I hadn't seen any of these before, so these were all new to me. I've heard quite a bit about Scrooge, and I read some reviews of Spirited because that one just came out, but fresh Scrooge experiences, like I said, there is a lot of them out there, so, you know. It just goes on and on. Scrooged with a D at the end is hard for me to say. I I don't know. It doesn't. It's not conducive to that. It's like a a workout for the mouth. Scrooged. You had to like bend it in six directions to, to get those <laughs> those sounds. What do you call it? Isn't there like a a word for all the different pronunciation sounds or something? I don't know. Like the phonemes. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of phonemes going on. I remember there was somebody on America's Got Talent once who said he had named himself Thoth because it was the most difficult one-syllable word to say. At least that's what he claimed. <laughs> but Scrooged is up there. Yeah. You gotta go like from the front of the mouth to the back of the throat and then back up to the front of the mouth. But I'm glad that you went along with my wonky order because I did end up being interested in Spirited. I've probably got the most to say about that one, but they'll all get their due in turn. I'm curious about what the budget for Spirited was. Wikipedia says $75 million, but somewhere else in the article says like that was just for the actors. So I'm not really sure. It looks like a lot of money was thrown at this thing. Maybe more than they even needed. That's the bullshit thing with these streaming movies is it's like, it just all starts to sound made up. Like, the Gray Man. Do you know what The Gray Man is, Brian? It was a, a dumb action movie that came out in like 2021, and its budget was like $175 million or something like that. Meanwhile, the the Godzilla movie that's in theaters now was had a budget of $10 million. Okay, go back and watch Ghosted, which was the, the movie that came out this year starring Ana de Armas and uh, who was the other? It wasn't Ryan Reynolds. It was one of the other handsome fellas. I think it was Chris Evans, maybe. Anyways, it's like entirely in front of green screen. And it's a script that I feel like I could have written in 45 minutes. And probably they had Chat GPT write it. And the budget for this is supposedly $200 million. Like, what's How is that happening? How is that possible? What are they doing with $200 million? That's outrageous. It's ballooning. And then in the case of streaming... How do they make any of that money back? I know. They just assume that people are going to sign up. I think soon the veil is going to get stripped away. It's all just some pit. I mean, it kind of already has with Disney. Yeah. I mean, that's what Netflix was doing is because they were making money hand over fist. They're like, well, we got to do something with it. We got to get keep on like squeezing the lemon, getting the last few people to sign up. So let's spend exorbitant sums for buzzy movies that now set the expectation that we have to release a buzzy movie every 14 days and then bury it. Right. They got to find some way to make movies cheaper. That's that's what they got to do. Think of all the Christmas carols you could make for $200 million. Indeed. 
or you go with the Iger approach and what movies need is more executives on the set. I, Iger says a lot of things. I think Iger needs to talk less is what I think. It's like every week he's saying something different about why he's struggling. But we'll have to see. We'll have to see what the years ahead hold in the Christmases yet to come. Spirited has songs by the team of Pasek and Paul. So we've previously covered a couple movies that they did music for. La La Land and The Greatest Showman. Yeah, La La Land, they wrote the lyrics. Justin Hurwitz did the tunes, but Greatest Showman um, and this and Dear Evan Hansen. Right. And I felt like this, I haven't actually seen Dear Evan Hansen in its entirety, but I feel like this one had some of that same feeling. I don't know. Yeah, uh, this was the first one where I listened to it and I was like, oh, this is Pasek and Paul, like very clearly, like they've done enough things that it's it's really starting to sound like them. And you're right. I heard a ton of Dear Evan Hansen in here. Someone said that they're the McDonald's of musical composers these days because you always know what you're going to get and it won't be like high art, but it'll be fairly satisfying. And I feel like that's pretty spot on. I think they're actually doing more interesting, maybe not more interesting work. They're doing more enjoyable work than many other. I mean, it's not like a lot of other composers are getting their songs in major Hollywood films, you know, so I'm at least enjoying what they're doing. I read a book that said Trump likes McDonald's so much because he knows they won't poison him. <laughs> it's like they, they make the food fresh when you walk up and order it. Nobody knows who's going to walk into a McDonald's. The premise of Spirited is that Redemption via Christmas Ghost is a bureaucratic workplace. So it's like a Pete Doctor musical. Yeah, Cabin in the Woods, but Christmas Carol. Exactly. Or a little bit of uh, Inside Out or Soul or Monsters, Inc., like we talked about. Right. Monsters, Inc. paired with Cabin in the Woods not too long ago. I did like some of the lyrics and some of the songs. There's a song that bookends the movie. It's at the start and the end. It's called Christmas Morning Feeling. And it has the members of this organization kind of explaining the whole gist that they say they're doing the world a world of good because that's our after livelihood. These are ghosts and it makes explicit that they were previously people and then they died and now they're ghosts. So they're not, you know, a deity that exists, an entity that exists completely separate from humanity. They, they were people, now they're dead, and this is how they spend the afterlife. And that's kind of interesting because I always thought of the spirits of A Christmas Carol to be basically what you just said. They're not former people, but this one pivots on that and makes it explicit. Yeah, I would have thought of them more as like angels or something. Right. Another lyric I enjoy a lot in this song is, We're planting the seeds and joy is blooming. Now we've got one less hateful human. So they spend the entirety of a year, they select a candidate that they're going to work their Scrooge treatment on, and they spend the whole year getting ready. There's the three ghosts that we know about, and they kind of work under Jacob Marley as their boss. And they are supported by a team of people working behind the scenes who are like the stage managers. And they put together all the tableaus that will get presented to 
the person that they call the perp, the subject of their treatment, who they're trying to get to turn their life around. When there's magic in a world, it can complicate things because, like, why do they need to build sets or whatever? Why do they need to build these things that get presented? Why isn't it just time travel? I feel like that's a step stuck into the process that maybe doesn't need to be there. It's like, it's magic already. Do you need a build team? Maybe time travel is just out of their realm. Off limits magic. They don't have a time turner like Hermione. True, true. Good point. But I did like this concept because it... It was kind of, I've used this word a whole lot in talking about these kinds of stories, but it was like a postmodern deconstruction of the the tropes and the basic framework of the, the Christmas Carol. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I hadn't actually ever seen anything quite like that before. And it hadn't even occurred to me that you could do the postmodern, how does the sausage get made take on A Christmas Carol? I enjoyed it too because we I think we've talked in a past Christmas Carol episode about the fact that this is a lot of infrastructure to set up for one guy. Especially like why does the ghost of Christmas present exist? Does it exist just to work with Scrooge, one human? It seems like these are people that Marley reached out to who were already at work doing these types of things. So I think to have it go beyond the one individual makes sense. And then the term they use is perp. And I was like, well, they should just call them all Scrooges. That should be the term. And that put something in my brain. It's like, why are they not talking more about Scrooge and all of this? But it comes up. Yeah. Gradually more and more. The central character, though, is the Ghost of Christmas Present, played by Will Ferrell, who has been the ghost of Christmas present for nearly 200 years and various people in the organization are encouraging him to retire, which, what does that even mean? So, okay. So he's not going to be the ghost of Christmas present anymore. By the way, in the book, the ghost of Christmas present is the only one they specifically say has a ton of turnover because the present is gone in an instant. They say every year there's a new ghost of Christmas present. That's like in the Dickens book, <laughs> but no, since a long time passed, like since the Scrooge times, Will Ferrell has been the ghost of Christmas present. For about 180 years. Hmm. Yeah. Huh. All right. But then, okay, he's going to retire. He's not going to be the ghost of Christmas present anymore. So one would think, I would think, he's going to just be dead after that point. He's going to pass on into the afterlife like Bruce Willis. But no, that's not how it works. You go back and be alive as a human on Earth again after you've served a tour of duty as a Christmas ghost. But you don't, like, get born again in a new body. You just start kind of arbitrarily at an adult age, I guess. What controls that, then? To quote The Simpsons, a, a wizard did it. Is, is that what it is? Yeah. There's no good explanation for this. And I was like, uh... Yeah, I'm with you that it doesn't really stand up to much scrutiny. I guess that's their reward for doing a good job is you get to live again and you don't have to go through being a child. But like, OK, so you're just a new person who's out there. So like what now you're in the world and people can be like, oh, my God, a new person. I've never seen this person before. What do you what's your story you're going to give? <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, do you do that when you see a new person? <laughs> 
I guess not. That would be kind of funny walking down the road, someone you've never seen. Oh my god, a new person! <laughs> Although, you know, they would have I'm to... I'm starting to think there's more than a hundred of these. They would have to deal with, like, birth certificates and things. I'm yeah. sure they would run into questions. Do former ghosts pay taxes? <laughs> Do they have a social security number? This guy doesn't have a social security number for Roy! Yeah, very strange. I think they could have avoided some of these difficulties, but they are crucial to how things unfold. And what if you die after you're a post-ghost? Okay, so you're born normal. Okay, you come from nothing. Life is breathed into the womb. You're born. New soul. Awesome. You live a life. You die. You're a ghost. Okay. Then you retire as a ghost, and you go back to being a human. Okay, well, now we're kind of muddying up the supply here. Then what happens when you die that time? Do you go back? Is it like, I would say it's like a Buddhist thing, like a reincarnation thing, except it's, you don't get like brought back into a new being. You're just kind of, you hit the pause button, then you hit play again, you know? Yeah, it's like a extra life in a video game. But the movie opens with the successful completion of one Christmas rep where they've turned the life around of a subject, like a mean neighbor. They've got her treating her neighbors nicer. And so the cycle begins again. It's like you said you recently watched Elf for maybe the first time, right, Dan? Yes. Mm -hmm. I love at the start of that when Santa comes back to his workshop and he says, Good job, everybody. Now it's time to begin preparation for next Christmas. And all the elves cheer. <laughs> it's like the work never ends, but they're happy about it because that's their lot in life. And so for the next go round, Marley recommends a perp who is ultimately unimportant because Will Ferrell is not on board with that guy that is suggested. They're like researching him and Will Ferrell thinks he's too conventional. He's boring. He wants a challenge, especially if this is maybe going to be his last one as a Christmas ghost. He's like Jack Skellington. That's a good point. Give me a challenge. He wants more. And so while they're doing this research, Ryan Reynolds star of the 1998 television film Taurus Trap, walks through... As he likes to be called. <laughs> and... I guess he's an asshole. That's something we're going to talk about with this movie especially, but even off-pod I've been talking about it, is like, when you have a Christmas story where somebody is nasty and needs to get redeemed... I find often they end up making them not super, like, evil. Because you gotta empathize with them. So, sometimes the nasty version that you meet at first is, like, not even that bad. But what what do we see this guy do? His name is, what, Clint Briggs, I guess. But let's just call him Ryan Reynolds. He's basically playing Ryan Reynolds, you know. But he is a media executive type who like does PR campaigns and it's kind of bizarre how we're introduced to him because he's like a advocate for natural Christmas trees as opposed to plastic Christmas trees on behalf of like this Christmas tree growing organization. And in your typical Hallmark movie, like the, which again, we'll get to the, uh, Christmas tree farm is like the symbol of homegrown, homespun charm. That's not normally who you'd expect to be the organization for which 
the bad guy is repping. So like, this is a little bit weird, but I do think it's like we as a people understand that the selfish, yuppie, fast paced executive who only cares about money, money, money. We get that point. So it's like I, I don't know why they made him the Christmas tree thing. Maybe just to be kind of like a joke or a reversal of expectation didn't really land for me, but you at least get the concept. Oh, he's just a smarmy asshole. That, that that's that's the vibe he gives off, at least. My understanding of it is that he sows division. Like in the song, he explicitly says people want to fight a culture war, and I say let's go for it. So it's like a timely thing, I guess, that he's he's. Like the Russian troll farm. He wants to get people mad at each other. And that's like his big evil doing is that he's 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 pulling people apart, pulling the country apart, which is a little like metaphysical. Like, can one person really be held responsible for that if there's so many factors and so many people involved? But he gets slimier because pretty soon he starts advising his niece on a grade school presidential campaign like she's going to be president of her elementary school and he encourages her to be cutthroat and do opposition research on her opponents like dig up dirt on these other elementary schoolers and he has help in this effort from octavia spencer who is like his lackey his bob cratchit and she's torn because she's like a well-paid executive, but has to do this soul-destroying work, like character-smearing 10-year-old. <laughs> I like the song that she sings about that, except it felt very Evan Hansen. Like the one, it's, what was it called? The View From Here. And she keeps like reprising it. Mm -hmm. Reprising it. The, the pronunciation is debated in this. That's one thing. <laughs> So I, I don't know when to, to plug this in, but there's a lot of songs and I noticed they happen in spurts, which I don't quite know why that is, but it'll be like three songs within 10 to 15 minutes and then like a 15 minute break and then two or three more songs. I think it just so happened that was what the structure ended up being. I don't think that was intentional, but something like half of the songs, there is a joke like oh, not another song. Can you believe this is a musical? And some of them, they even like stop singing it and somebody complains about it and they sing it again. And I was like, why are you going to make a musical if you like are just going to complain about it being a musical? I, I didn't. That joke might have been funny once, but doing it like six times was like, OK, let's just we're going to go with it. This is what it is. Definitely agree. That's a problem that a lot of postmodern stuff encounters. It's like this is the way the form works. If you're going to use the form, use the form. It's like not everything needs to get picked apart with multiple levels of irony, especially when it's in a musical, like a certain level of suspension of disbelief is assumed. That's how a musical works. Exactly. In the Lorax, I don't know if we commented on it, but there's like a beat where... Taylor Swift describes the truffula trees as like soft as butterfly milk or something. And then she and Zac Efron laugh at how goofy that sounds. But like Dr. Seuss is the whole raison d'etre of this thing. And he uses silly words. So like 
if you're going to embrace it, you can't also keep it at an arm's length. Well said. And that's part of the reason that I I kind of enjoy, but I get tired of like the whole, man, if this here's what this song would really sound like. It's like I've seen it for like four high school musical songs. I'm sure they do it for other things, too. But like the one where they're banging the pots and pans and it just sounds like people hitting a pan with a wooden spoon in this updated version. It's a little bit oh. funny. But. Oh, I do love that video. <laughs> the people like scooting around the floor and just their their shoes squeaking. So present, Will Ferrell is able to convince the team that Ryan Reynolds is the guy they should work on. And the year kicks off with them getting ready for this. And finally, they get to Christmas and the process starts. Yeah, I think the one important thing is they repeatedly call him their skepticism for having him be the quote unquote perp because he's an irredeemable. Well, Dan, they should say irredeemable, but they say unredeemable. Really? I thought they said irredeemable. Unredeemable. Is that the phrase? I'm going to look at the... Maybe my brain just tuned out the stupid word. Corrected it. But let me see. I'm 95% sure the song that they eventually linger on for a while is called Unredeemable. Yeah, I've played this soundtrack a lot, Dan, in the last week, and it is Unredeemable is, is the term they use, which is arguable whether that's correct grammar. I think you ought to say Irredeemable, I-R-R. But yes, he's been classified that way. Ryan Reynolds is an unredeemable, quote-unquote, and... They say, but only one other unredeemable has ever been redeemed. Looks thoughtfully off into the distance. <laughs> Heavily implied to be Scrooge. And we'll see if that turns out to be the case. But both Present and Marley were familiar with this past unredeemable case. They both worked on it. And so things are seeming like they're lining up that they're talking about Scrooge. But once the process starts, things go off the rails pretty quickly because the ghost of Christmas past is seduced by Ryan Reynolds. And then she's like, oh, well, if I go ahead with my work, it would be awkward. So can you cover for me present? And all of that rigmarole is just an excuse to have Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds spend more screen time together. I did find it funny, though, that Ryan Reynolds was like so cotton to what they were trying to do and was just like commenting on it and like messing with it as they went and stuff. And the idea of him seducing a ghost actually made me laugh out loud. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> and so basically present in this first act is like a substitute teacher. Like he inherits the notes from the past ghost and is trying to go off of their curriculum and presenting the past tableaus, but they are failing to sway Ryan Reynolds the way they ought to. So Present breaks away from the assigned script, and he's like, well, this isn't working, so I'm going to show you my past instead of your past, because I've got some doozies in my past. And Present, Will Ferrell's past, is the Christmas Carol that we know. Suddenly, we are in 1840s London. And one thought on this real quick. It, it dovetails really nicely, actually, with how they set up uh, Ryan Reynolds to be, 
you know, like a, a spin doctor who can always dig into the story and figure out like how to bring someone down. Cause that's very clearly what he's doing to ghost of Christmas present, who we now know to actually be Scrooge. Right. Spoilers, everybody. Well, you were just about to say it. Present himself <laughs> is Scrooge. That's the reveal that we walk down this London street and there's Will Ferrell as Scrooge. Why did his accent change? He's working in America now. I guess if you're working in America for 200 years, the accent changes. I thought this was a really good twist, though. I did not see this coming. Me neither. I wasn't. The part that I like best about it is suddenly we see all these set pieces where it's like, wow, this was a whole other world they had to create. They threw a lot of money at this thing. I just I just know it. And the way that all the songs are produced, there's like pyrotechnics and crazy lighting and water effects. And there was a budget involved. But now it's the way that we are accustomed to seeing A Christmas Carol, the London streets. And they even sing this number that feels like it's an homage to Thank You Very Much or something, or at least to like Oliver, the 60s and 70s large scale Dickens musicals where they go dancing down the street and it's this big crowd all of a sudden of Londoners, Cockney accents galore. And the song they sing is called Good Afternoon, which like Thank You Very Much is wielded as like a fuck you. So I'll I'll go ahead and say here that in general, I thought the humor in this movie was like nails on a chalkboard bad, like uh, on average. But the Good Afternoon being a Dickensian slur I thought was really funny. It was it kept it kept coming back too? Oh, I found it annoying. Also, <laughs> oh, you, oh, you thought that was dumb too? I thought that was funny. <laughs> but you agree with me on the humor in general in this one? Yeah, I would agree. What I liked about this bit was it was kind of hearkening back to other musicals that we've watched. Like it's acknowledging that this is one part of a larger puzzle. It's part of a long tradition and a long canon. Which felt good because we watch so many of these things. It's like a, a little bit of solidarity, a little bit of uh, fan... What do they call it? A little bit for the fans. Fan service? Fan service, there it is. I thought the song that Marley sings when the Christmas process is first starting also owed a little bit to Jason Alexander's performance from the, the 2004 musical the Alan Menken musical that we watched. The one starring Frasier, right? Right. I can see that. In their discussion, back here in Dickensian London, Scrooge reveals that he died almost immediately after the events of A Christmas Carol, which is something we have discussed before. Like, okay, so he turns his life around, but how long does he actually have? Because he's an old man. (laughs) Apparently, three weeks is the answer here. That also made me laugh, yeah. (laughs) He says, back then, the leading cause of death was January. (laughs) That was a time that I laughed. It's not just that he died, but my favorite idea that's interrogated in all this postmodern deconstruction, that is something that you and I have talked about, Brian, that sometimes a Christmas carol in the last few minutes will, like, flirt with, with, like, one gesture or something, but, like... 
it's just one day, one night, like is someone who had as much of like a broken view of the world really going to like completely flip their viewpoint overnight? How is that something that lasts forever? Just like, you know how sometimes you wake up emotional from a dream and then you're in that headspace, in that emotional state for like a half hour or an hour. And then you're like, okay, no, I'm back to my normal self now. It's like, I feel like that's what would happen to Scrooge. And I like that this movie is basically questions like, okay, does that change actually persist on someone whose inner life was quite as dark as Scrooge's was? And the fact that he died so quickly afterwards means, well, he didn't really have to get an answer. He didn't have a chance to backslide. But he's also been doing this redemption work for 200 years. So it seems like that would be a good mark on his record. You know, he's been going by the book for so long. Well, but at that point, he's he's ghost Scrooge. He That's his job now. So it's not like he had to just be selfless Scrooge in Dickens's London, where he had to live a mortal coil, but also be selfless and giving to other people. I feel like the rules change once you become a ghost and that becomes your job. Mortal coil, a little bit of a Hamlet nod there. But yeah, so we know now that present is Scrooge and we're going to move forward with the understanding that this redemption mission that they're on isn't just about Ryan Reynolds. It's as much, if not more so, about Scrooge. And they proceed to the present, Ghost of Christmas Present, his assigned duties. And one of the things that Will Ferrell shows Ryan Reynolds is this ex-girlfriend that we briefly saw in the past tableaus. He's like, well, look, she's got a family now and she's happy. And Ryan Reynolds says, so what? Like, that's something that bugs you, Scrooge. That's something that you want. So something that they build up over the course of the movie is Will Ferrell having a relationship with Octavia Spencer, which seemed like a weird pairing to me. But also she can see the ghosts and she's the only one. And that's not really explained. Yeah, my take on this, a few things. One is that I agree they did not really have good chemistry. I mean, they're both, you know, solidly charming people so they more or less pull it off and i it's not just because you know she's kind of an unconventional romantic lead but i it did feel off to me and the whole thing about her being able to see the ghosts you have to explain away with headcanon because they don't ever give a good explanation for it but my headcanon was like he's close to his retirement he's like slipping back into his humanity again and when he meets this person who he feels an attraction to it like pulls him into the earthly plane but that's just my idea. The movie just has her see ghosts, and that's that. So, you know. Also in the present scenes, Ryan Reynolds's niece posts a video that I think Octavia Spencer dug up of her uh, rival, the other candidate for the election, talking bad about homeless people. Like, he's... He presents himself as philanthropic. He goes to like the soup kitchens and helps out. But like three years ago, when I guess he was like seven or however old and also still doing this work, he made some smarmy comment about homeless people being gross. And now the niece of Ryan Reynolds is spreading that around and canceling him. So this is a canceled grade schooler story. You don't need me to explain how little... This stands up to scrutiny. I mean, first of all, 10 year olds are idiots and assholes. So like they wouldn't care that someone said that they would. Oh, that's funny that he said that. They're also like the boys are edgelords, too. You know, it's like 
him doing something kind of irreverent would be endearing. And like, I don't know, just something he did three years ago wouldn't be so much of a flashpoint. Yeah, it's real dumb and it's going to get weirder. Scrooge does get talked into resigning as the Ghost of Christmas Present kind of mid-mission. And so, like, he's in the process of transitioning to being a human while Ryan Reynolds is still going through his his process. Well, I think it's important that it's Ryan Reynolds that talks him into doing it. Because remember, Ryan Reynolds' whole thing is he's trying to deflect the attention away from himself and his own failings. That's his coping mechanism, is he... He brings the spotlight on someone else because that's what he's paid to do is make other people look bad in their PR and feel bad. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's definitely Ryan Reynolds like taking the reins, taking over even before the whole process is done, because now he's going to kind of be a guide to Scrooge as he resumes a human form. And he's like coaching him. He's like a life coach for this new human or what did you say a new person (laughs) and he's like given will ferrell tips as he begins a life and a relationship with octavia spencer even as briggs now has to go through the future scenes with the ghost of christmas future who is tracy morgan from 30 rock and other things at least that's the voice there's like a tall basketball player inside the costume because he's really looming. I, I didn't even think about that until they show the actors at the end. I just assumed it was like a puppet or something. But there's a really tall person under the Grim Reaper robe. But what the future shows him is that this canceled kid killed himself. From the bullying, yeah. There you go. A little bit more Evan Hansen there. Oh, I didn't even make that connection, but you're definitely right. That's what happens in Evan Hansen. Sort of. Yeah. Uh, It hinges crucially on young suicide. Yeah, and cyberbullying. Right. So that's really what sticks with Ryan Reynolds. He's like, oh, this this was bad. I got to do what I can to stop this train of events. Yeah, and it's a good crack in his armor because the whole thing had been... Oh, that doesn't phase me. That doesn't phase me. But we know that the thing that he actually has lingering guilt about is caring after his his 10 year old niece. And so like showing someone who's kind of a mirror of that niece being so neglected and bullied because of something he did that he, he kills himself is finally the thing that breaks him down. That's true. Yeah. One thing I didn't mention is that the niece, her mom, who was Ryan Reynolds's sister, died and before she did she said she wanted ryan reynolds to help raise the the daughter and he turned her down like on her deathbed he was like no i don't want to find another relative to do it so he's kind of grappling with that but like when his switch is officially cemented is still coming up and there's this wishy-washy period where him and will ferrell are both wondering whether they're like capable of being redeemed. Can we be redeemed? Are we unredeemable? Again, I feel like Scrooge doesn't really need to wonder, but you make a good point, Dan, that he's now back in the human body, whereas he didn't really have to deal with the human world for very long. So I'll buy that. But like what finally puts Ryan Reynolds over the top, earns him the the buzzer beater point, is he jumps in front of a bus to save Will Ferrell. 
and all the Christmas ghosts come out to do their celebration that we had seen at the start of the movie, indicating that, yeah, we've checked the last box, all the requirements have been met, and the soul is redeemed, and they do this big dance in the city streets that looked very expensive. But by the end of the dance, Ryan Reynolds has made his way back to the same point on the stage, in the street, and time unfreezes, and the bus smashes him flat. Yeah, it's like Mean Girls when all of a sudden Regina George gets hit by a bus and it's like a moment of shock humor. A couple of really quick thoughts here. So the 10-year-old niece, she ends up deciding not to post the video because that was like something that was going to happen the next Christmas. So it hasn't actually happened yet. The video that like ends up cyberbullying her competitor and she decides not to do it. But there's this bit where like Ryan Reynolds is like racing to her like, no, don't be like me. Don't rain down fury upon your fellow man. Instead, be kind. But he like keeps slipping on the ice and people bumping into him so he doesn't get there in time. So there's a moment where like, oh, she did it anyways. But then it turns out she decided not to do it. So my whole thing here is like, okay, then what has been the point of all of this redemption? It didn't matter what he did. She didn't do it anyways. None of this was actually going to happen. And that made me really annoyed. Right. Like he had no power over it at all. So it was just scare tactics. And then to the to what you were just speaking about, where it ends up with him getting hit by a bus since he died. OK, what was did I say was my favorite like theme that this was looking at in terms of like enhancing what a Christmas Carol does? Well, it's looking at how does one stay redeemed? And they have a little bit of dialogue where they're like, well, it's not just like a light switch that flips on. It's something you decide to do every day. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a nice touch. That's going to be what the takeaway is at the end. While you're living on Earth, every day you need to wake up and decide that today I'm going to be like Scrooge on Christmas morning after he gets changed. It's not just something that's there and then it's done. It's a decision you make every day. But then he literally instantly dies after his redemption happens. So we don't actually get to see that. We don't actually get to see him go through that because now, oh, yeah, he's now in the afterlife where he's going to be sucked right into the system of making everybody's redemption better without any interrogation of what it actually means to be fully redeemed. I agree. It's iffy, but this lets us have the finale where the roles are now swapped, where Ryan Reynolds is the Christmas ghost and Will Ferrell is the human, and they're still best buds, and they check in with each other periodically throughout the year. Like, in the... Christmas Carol novella, there's some line where Marley says that he has floated around Scrooge all the year or something. He's, I have often sat in your presence. And this actually visualizes that, that they can see each other. And the Christmas ghosts, they're not just at work on Christmas. They are preparing and living afterlives. Have you watched The Good Place, Brian? I've seen the first three and a half seasons, and I need to finish it. I've only seen the first two seasons, but I was also thinking of that a little bit. Like this, these afterlife workers crafting a tableau to make mortals or recently deceased, as it may be, experience a certain moral awakening, I guess. Good point. Yeah, there was a lot of that. I really need to finish that show at some point, because I want to see how it ends. So... In that first hour of discussion, we got through one movie. That's Spirited. Dan, did you have other things about Spirited? The last thing I'll, I'll just throw out there, 
there was one moment like right after Will Ferrell becomes human and he's like commenting on everything in the world where he goes to a Christmas party and he's like, wow, you look really stupid in that outfit to someone. And the outfit that the guy is wearing is he's dressed up as Will Ferrell from Elf. I was like, oh, that's a funny little bit of meta humor there. Right. That 20 years on, Will Ferrell still making Christmas movies. Yeah, when we watched Elf, I said, I think it's like 10 years old now or something. And she's like, it came out in 03. It's 20 years old. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's crazy. Hard to grasp. Also, Elf is a much better movie. At least I think. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Where would you place Elf? Um, I might write a review of it for the site. I would probably peg it as a six. I, I thought the climax was kind of dumb where now all of a sudden they're trying to get Santa sleigh going, which I, we didn't, I didn't really care much about Santa, which it obviously parallels what's going on in the real world, but it is very funny and very charming and a nice encapsulation of the holiday spirit in a way that felt very 2003. I love elf. Maybe we do an elf episode at some point, but not this year. But are you ready to talk Scrooged from 1988? Sure. So this one was directed by Richard Donner, who also did The Goonies, probably some other stuff. Superman. An 80s powerhouse. And it stars Bill Murray, who was like in his prime, doing a lot of big roles. Actually, I read, interestingly, this was his comeback after he had taken like a four-year hiatus after a bomb. Or something like that. So it was actually kind of a big deal that he starred in this. Okay. Yeah, I guess I can see that. But the years run together. It was the 80s. You know, he did Ghostbusters. He did, I guess it was a few years after this, he did Groundhog Day. That was 93. This is what, 89? Is that right? I think it might have been 88. But yeah. I feel like in the 80s, it was cool to be rude and this idea was kind of embodied by Bill Murray. And that bothers me. He like gets admired for being a jerk, like constantly. And it's like, oh, so endearing. He's really unlikable. Like the first time I watched this movie was just a couple years ago after hearing about it for years and years. Like, oh, if you like Christmas Carol, got to watch Scrooged. He's really unpleasant. I don't like Bill Murray in this movie. I mean, it makes sense that he would be in this type of role because, of course, we love Groundhog Day so much where he starts out as the jerk and then over a long, arduous process gets redeemed. But it just doesn't feel the same in this one. We'll, we'll kind of talk through it and I'll see if you're on the same page about that. Since you threw out the Groundhog Day comparison, I'll say that Groundhog Day is kind of already a Christmas carol in some ways. Like, instead of seeing his past and his present and his future, he sees the same day over and over again. But like, it kind of still has the same effect that A Christmas Carol does. And it's still like a supernatural way for him to get a zoom out on what his life is. Yeah, and it works better than this. I'm not going to give this an eight. And I gave Groundhog Day an eight. But this movie also kind of has the angle that this is the TV Christmas Carol. It's all about TV and how important TV is in... American life in the 80s because Bill Murray plays a character named Frank, although we'll probably just keep calling him Bill Murray, who is an executive at a TV station and he is a climber. He wants to be a big wheel in the industry. He's already an executive, but, you know, he's always eyeing that next slot up the ladder. 
And his brainchild this year at the TV station is he's overseeing a live telecast of Scrooge on Christmas Eve. So making the whole station work on Christmas Eve and do this special. And I couldn't quite follow what the special was because sometimes it's like an overwrought costume drama. And other times it's like a scantily clad women dancing around jokes about how you could it could be a scary, violent TV spectacle. And I was like, so what's really going on with this Scrooge adaptation? And we don't see very much of it happening. So, yeah, it's confused. It's like a mixed metaphor, because the very first thing in the movie is a series of promos for things that are going to be on the TV channel. And it's all like crass, violent stuff with Christmas interwoven. There's like the Lee Marvin Christmas shootout or something. Yeah, Lee Majors, the $6 million man. Lee Majors, sorry. Playing uh, a riff on himself, which brought me back to Trojan War, the movie we talked about at this point several months ago, uh, where Lee Majors plays a cop and he's essentially doing a riff on the $6 million man. Yeah, so I think what the movie is going for is that this over-reliance on television has like led to a violent society and even more so just that people aren't empathetic now and they don't connect with people the same way because we're so hyper fixated on the mass media. I think that's the message. Yeah, and that's kind of rendered in like a almost expressionistic version of New York City where like everything is big looming shadows and outsized skyscrapers and you even get some of the dark sewers and stuff. Really cool production design, I will say. It is good production design. I like all the practical effects, especially once we start seeing the ghosts. So Bill Murray mistreats his employees. He's kind of got a couple employees who share the Cratchit role because he has this assistant who's an African-American woman named Grace, who's always tagging along after him. And she's like his, his secretary or his personal assistant. And she has to do all these things for him and is put upon and has a family... But then there's also Bobcat Goldthwait there, who's like the goofy clerk. And it, of course, sounds like Bobcat Goldthwait. Right. One of Pain or Panic in Hercules. Right. Yeah, he was the red one. I think he was Pain. The fat one? Yeah. Yes. The bulk, not the skull. <laughs> the apple-shaped man, not the banana-shaped man. And so we spend a little bit of time of the lead up to the transformational evening seeing the scrooge in his element bill murray just being unpleasant like he's planning out who he's going to give christmas presents to and the people that he wants to impress he's giving vcrs to and the people that he doesn't want to impress he's giving dish towels to which of course now 40 years removed just sounds silly because how much could a vcr cost it's like probably a towel is worth more these days Especially like a vintage NBC branded one given out to employees as a Christmas gift. That would fetch like $1,200 on eBay. <laughs> but yeah, they unveil. Like, I wasn't sure how you're supposed to feel about the the VCR. But then when they finally show one, it's like, ooh. <laughs> like, this is, a, this is a nice VCR. Yeah. It's like in um, Back to the Future when they're looking at the cool car. It doesn't look that cool to me, but you know from the vibe that it's supposed to be a cool car. Uh-huh. 
But pretty soon, Frank starts receiving the Scrooge treatment himself when his old business mentor shows up as a zombie. And he has, like, empty sockets instead of eyes and is pretty creepy. He's he's like a mummy. He's, like, falling apart. I like this. I thought it was good. This was one of the cooler scenes, honestly. Like, he get, goes to his office and the elevator door starts, like, bending in. It reminded me of The Haunting with the one scene where the door kind of bends. And I thought that was the moment where my my ears perked up a little bit at like, oh, here we go. We're now we're getting to the actual genre stuff. Right. Pretty much whenever one of the ghosts shows up, it, it gets cool. Another important part of the whole thing is that Frank's ex Claire comes back into the picture and she's played by Karen Allen from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so she's like the the Isabel character where he prioritized his work over her in the past but in this case, she's also, like, still around and, like, very open to reconciliation. And so the choice is just, is Bill Murray going to continue to be an asshole? Right. It's not like he has to prove himself to her. He just has to literally stop saying, no, I won't get back together with you. Wow. <laughs> yeah, not a lot that he has to do in this case. And not only that, but she's, like, throwing herself at him. <laughs> yeah, she, like, keeps showing up. And it's like, can he spend five minutes not insulting homeless people? <laughs> Answer is no, surprisingly. B yeah, Bill Murray, don't insult homeless people challenge, parentheses, impossible. <laughs> that would be how the, the meme would be rendered on Instagram. So she's like drifting in and out, and he starts kind of drifting in and out of reality like popping in and out of this telecast that's going on as the different ghosts whisk him away. Also, there was this guy, like this other wannabe executive who's been brought aboard at the TV station to kind of help with this broadcast, but it's clear that he wants to take over Frank's job. And so now that Frank is like warping in and out of reality, every time that happens this guy who's nipping at his heels is going to usurp the opportunity to like prove himself in Bill Murray's place. And I actually like this little narrative bit, because if you think about a Christmas Carol, it happens in one fell swoop. Well, it's really one hour apart each one, but it's not like he has conversations with other real humans in that time or like sometimes sees ghosts and sometimes sees real humans. But for Bill Murray, that does happen. And it plays nicely with this idea that he's like branded himself as the steadfast workaholic who's all about his job. And and he always delivers on that. But now he's like losing his edge a little bit because he's seeing crazy stuff. And like one example of it is he orders a highball, which is a drink, and he gets delivered a cup. And in his vision, he sees an eyeball in the drink. And I thought that was kind of interesting, although I had no idea what it had to do with the Christmas Carol. But that was kind of like a funny little uh, example of him losing his mind and seeing spirit stuff. Right. There's random horror things going on. Like he looks over and sees a waiter catch fire. And yeah, what, is, what does that do other than be creepy and have another opportunity for practical effects? Not much. And I would say still probably made the movie better having that in there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we got the ghosts showing up. Past arrives as a taxi driver, kind of a gremlin-y taxi driver who drives Bill Murray through his past. And there's not much past to show because what's revealed is that 
Frank was raised by television. More than parents, he just spent his time camped out in front of the TV set and based his identity around that. And so you don't have a lot of scenes to present. It's just like how he spent his childhood. And also that he blew off the ex-girlfriend to focus on the career. Back in the present, I guess, in the real world, he does have a moment where he visits Claire at this homeless shelter where she works. And the crowd of homeless people at the soup kitchen is like a who's who of character actors. Like Mama Fratelli from the Goonies is there. And the guy that they spend the most time on was in the Odyssey, Dan. He played Aeolus, the god of the wind. Whoa. Interesting. The guy who says, Odysseus, you're the first mortal to use his mind. So I'm going to help you out. And he gives him the sack of wind. That's the homeless guy who pretty soon here is going to die from exposure to the elements. That's right. And not to spoil it here, but he doesn't not die when the movie's over. Did you notice that? Like we see him as a ghost, like or an angel or something. So Bill Murray is not redeemed for indirectly causing the death of a homeless man. Another case, yeah, where the Scrooge doesn't actually have an impact. I did find it interesting, though, that this same beat happens in Groundhog Day, where there's a homeless person who dies, and no matter what Bill Murray does, it doesn't make a difference. Played better there, yeah. But, yeah, the Ghost of Christmas Present shows up as, like, a tooth fairy, and she's taking Frank around, and, yeah, shows him that the homeless guy freezes to death... Shows him Grace's family, who she's got the brood of children, including the Tiny Tim character, who's this kid who is mute, I guess. He's like traumatized. Or at least selectively mute. He can't talk because he saw his father die. I thought that the Ghost of Christmas Present, you said she was dressed like a tooth fairy. I hadn't thought of that, but I think that's what it is. She was... So annoying. I liked the ghost of Christmas past who was like the goofy cab driver. So that's kind of funny. That's like a New York thing. And then she was like, her whole thing is that to get him to pay attention, she has to smack him, like bonk his head into a wall or something. And I think one thing I've learned is like, you can do pretty much any tone with a Christmas carol, but slapstick is not one you can really do. That's like one of the ones that's off limits. Like that's what I felt about, uh, the Looney Tunes one from last year too is like somehow that seems to subvert the the solemnity of the Christmas Carol story. I'm on the same page. Also, she has an annoying voice. It's like a high squeaky voice. But one funny bit is that Bobcat Goldthwait descends into degeneracy really, really fast. Like, his life just completely falls apart, and he's, like, drinking from a paper bag and going insane after one day of losing his job. So we keep checking in with him, and it's just getting worse and worse. It is, he's very funny. My favorite is when he barges in with a shotgun. He's going postal on his boss. <laughs> right. And, like, as that's about to happen, where he's He's grabbed the gun and he's heading to Frank's office. Frank gets visited by the ghost of Christmas future, who, in addition to being the Grim Reaper, like usual, he is like also a TV set. 
He reminded me, have you ever seen the experimental film Meshes of the Afternoon? Mm-hmm. Where there's like a Grim Reaper that has a mirror for a head. This is like a Grim Reaper that has a TV set for a head. And what future shows him is that Grace's tiny Tim son has been institutionalized and Claire has kind of embraced Frank's selfish teachings and is not a good person anymore. And then Frank sees his own funeral where he's being cremated and has the experience of actually being fed into the flames, which is kind of intense. Yeah, although... There were like four people at his funeral and they were sad that he died. Which is better than a lot of Scrooges get. Exactly, yeah. So he warps back to reality one final time to find himself confronted with gun-toting Bobcat Goldthwait and says, hold up, you don't really want to shoot me. You want revenge on the TV station. And so they go together and storm the studio as the show is being broadcast. And Bobcat Goldthwait holds everybody at gunpoint while Frank co-ops the airwaves to apologize, like, to the whole city all at once. And he does this heart-to-heart where he's doing the mea culpa stuff, saying, I'm sorry, Claire, I'm sorry. Who else? Like, his brother that he was rude to, who's kind of like the nephew Fred. And all his employees. And then everybody is happy and bonds together at the end. One thing I read is that he improvised his speech at the end. They had one thing written and Bill Murray just wanted to follow his spirit, which I thought it sounded kind of less polished than some of other deliveries. So that didn't surprise me too much when I read that. Mm hmm. Yeah, seems seems right. But it's kind of fitting that he's like going off book. Yeah. That's true. He's shooting from the hip. So he, you know, reconnects with Karen Allen and is the changed Scrooge. Which is not hard to do, yeah. No, he didn't didn't have to do a lot. But he's still kind of a jerk. She's like, no, don't pull me on screen. I don't want to pull on screen. And then not only does he pull her on screen and start kissing her, but he starts talking about doing Kama Sutra things with her on national television in front of 50 million people. And everybody's laughing along. Oh, Bill Murray. It's like... This is horrible. Like, why would she want to be with him? He seems like a total ass. Yeah, I really don't like Bill Murray in this movie. So I'm glad that that is pretty much what I'm getting from you as well. So that's Scrooged. I waited a long time to watch it the first time, and I would have been happy to wait longer. It kind of hinges on how much do you find Bill Murray being a jerk, just an endless source of comedy. It's like I watched the movie... Fletch, which was the Chevy Chase vehicle. And it's the same thing, but it's Chevy Chase instead of Bill Murray. It's like it lives or dies by the comic persona and is spent 90 to 100 minutes with that comic persona appealing to you. And to me, it's like chugging a two liter bottle of Sprite. It's like a little sip would have been nice. And then we could have maybe done something not quite so uh, acidic. <laughs> it's kind of like if you watched a Jim Carrey movie and didn't like him making faces. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Bill Murray does wise cracks. That's his thing, is he's a smart aleck. So, that was 1988. Shall we talk 2012's It's Christmas, Carol? Sure. All right. 
So I haven't watched too many Hallmark Christmas movies. The joke is kind of that they're interchangeable. I'm like 95% sure this was a Hallmark movie. Well, the version that I found streaming for free had Hallmark Channel as like a watermark on the bottom corner for the entire runtime. Okay, good. Because I came across this on Amazon Prime, I think. And it does have some of the tropes I have heard are stereotypical of the form. Yeah, I've probably seen in the realm of 10 to 15 of these over the past 10 years. It really became big around like 2017, 2018. That's when their popularity surged. And also Hallmark still had the monopoly. Like now it's kind of spread out. There was like a a bunch of rogues spun off from Hallmark to make like the American movie channel or something like that, that makes their own ones. And then obviously now the streamers get on the game. But from like 2017, 2018, 2019, it was like just a Hallmark monopoly. So in 2012, they made 13 of these Christmas movies, which if you think about it, making 13 original movies for one channel in one year is already insane. But then by 2022, they were up to 29 unique just on the hallmark channel 29 oh my god just for christmas season you could watch one every single day of the month yeah except they started like october and then that doesn't count most days in december they have one premiere on hallmark and one appear on hallmark 2 it's like called hallmark mysteries and something that's usually not quite so comedic it's usually a little more dramatic but they it's so that doesn't even count those ones so we're talking like a redonkulous number of uh, Christmas movies being made by them. And I would say this was a a little bit of a mix on how hard it hit the Hallmark tropes. But if you think about it, the Hallmark tropes are kind of a Christmas carol anyways. Somebody who values business instead of a family life and then making that change. And not only that, but it very often involves them going either to a home to their hometown. So kind of like their past And very often there is like a fling from high school or like a bully from high school or like someone from their past and they see their mom or their dad. And, oh, remember, there's always a Christmas event. It's always sometimes it's a baking competition. Sometimes it's a school dance. There's always something going on. And so you're kind of getting this like escape from the capitalistic world, especially, you know, these are kind of tend to be conservative values with like women as the protagonist in the business world. No, you got to go back to those family values. You got to stay at home with your man in a small red tinted town. And then she sees the error of her ways by the end of the film and sticks with the, the hometown hunk who works at a Christmas farm or something like that. Right. So they don't actually travel to a different town in this one. That's, that was a little bit different and it wasn't super colorful it was kind of grayish a lot of the time i thought she does wear red when she's good and nice and a homebody at the end but a lot of time it was it was kind of brownish and i just i thought it wasn't as on theme with the color palette as it could have been this is no zombies dan no they and hallmark has gotten better about that you're right there's not really too much like bright christmas lights and stuff like normally they have a lot of things that pop off the screen. None of these have high budgets, but this one, I agree, felt even kind of cheap for a Hallmark movie. It looks so cheap. Like, I was surprised. That's what had me wondering if it was even a Hallmark movie. Like, this looks like a student film for a lot of the runtime. But honestly, I mean, if you're cranking out 
even 12, which what they were doing this year or how 13 or however many it was like, you don't have that much of a budget. You're just kind of doing it. You're filming on a set, a set you know, so I don't know. <laughs> but this one had me thinking of Elf because it's about people working at a publishing firm, which is also where James Conn works in Elf. And I don't know what city they're supposed to be in. It seems like not a huge city, but somewhere that would have a big publishing firm. So some city. Did they ever make that explicit? I wasn't sure. To be honest... I, a, I don't know, and B, from the perspective of these movies, the coastal elite is just one big blob. So <laughs> I, I would say it's something in the East Coast, but I don't know what it is. Okay. Yeah, it's like they want us to think it's New York, but it doesn't look like New York. So I'm not sure. This is probably in Canada somewhere. Who knows, though? The star is Emmanuel Vogier, which... Hashtag say her name. <laughs> we we want her to join the ranks of Christopher Showerman and uh, who else? Ches Starbuck. Put Emmanuel Vogier up there on the board. <laughs> well, the difference is I thought she was fine. I didn't think she was bad. And most of those other performances I thought were not especially good, although there was a, a charm to their ineptitude. But did you think she was bad, Brian? Or did you just think she was kind of an interesting name and like a unique presence it was a name that you're never going to hear again that's a good point yeah <laughs> like, out of left field this is her this is her lead role and she's not first billed on the poster but she is the star that's actually another interesting thing about the hallmark movies is that they churn through the same set of star actresses now that pool has opened up as more money has gone to like the cottage industry of christmas films for families to be just consumed in mass but it used to be like there was eight total actresses in like 20 films so she is not one of them though i had never seen her before this apparently she was in one of the nightmare on elm street movies and that's like her other biggest role oh i did read in the last year or so that candace cameron uh dj from full house was one of those actresses that did a whole slate every year and so it was a big deal when she was part of the schism exactly yeah and 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 split off to the rival family values channel and danica mckeller who's winnie cooper is one of them there's a few others one of the actresses from mean girls lacy i don't know how you say her name it's like a french name cherbet or something like that i've seen it written out she appears in a lot of them. And yeah, a, f a few others. Ashley Williams. Vanessa Hudgens has done quite a few, although those may have been Netflix originals. Yeah, that that's when it, after it had gone more high budget. She was a, she was an actual draw, her, her name, not just an old childhood star, but I guess she is an old childhood star. So yeah, but she was Netflix only, I think. Yeah, yeah. They did a grouping of those movies on Buzzed On Movies a year or so ago. This movie... Carol, so she's a publishing executive. She's like in charge of this company, recently stepped up into this role, and she's a taskmaster. Her employees don't like her. And a big reason is she's going to make them work on Christmas. Now, this was something in the Looney Tunes one that we talked about last year, where that's the threat. Is he going to have to work on Christmas? Which even Scrooge didn't do that. <laughs> he gave Cratchit the day off on Christmas. Uh, so we talked last year that I guess to make it modern, like, you got to be worse because Scrooge, that's not even that terrible. Like, capitalism has moved on. Back on the 26th. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
That's old fashioned. Gotta have them like peeing in a bottle in a warehouse now. And this character, Carol, her last name, I think, is Huffler, which is not a last name I've ever heard before. (laughs) Huffler. Yeah, every time they said that, I'm like, what? What are they saying? (laughs) Huffler? (laughs) Like Huffman, maybe. I've heard it Huffman. I've never heard Huffler. Like someone wrote down the letters that spell Huffler. That was the choice of the letters they wrote down. And then they said it about 75 times in this movie. (laughs) She kind of inherited this controlling role from the previous person who had it, whose name was Eve. So he had Christmas Eve as well as Christmas Carol. One of the things that Christmas Carol is criticized for, like what makes her cruel and out of touch, is that she's of the opinion that her firm should publish books that sell, not books that should be read. And like, yeah, of course, if you're a business person, you want your your business to make money, right? Well, Ben, you could say the same thing about Scrooge. I guess here it's taking it to the level of, does it matter if you print books that people don't want to read if they're good? Like they just won't buy them. So are you actually even doing anything? That's what I was thinking about. But I actually didn't mind it too much. Like symbolically, it's like you have to not just churn out a good, make a profit. It's like you need to care about what you're doing, which it is kind of doesn't fit in perfectly you're right it's kind of silly when you think about it too literally but it didn't bother me too much yeah i get that it's like you got to be in touch with what the art means you don't be a sellout don't make it just about the money this is a creative enterprise and different employees react differently to carol's tyranny so most of the group chafes and are like planning a splinter movement But one of them is, like, inspired by Carol and wants to build her life around Carol's teachings. And this is a character named Kendra. I actually thought this was a lot like Barbie's Christmas Carol. In the the Barbie Christmas Carol last year, she had a friend who was, like, every time that the rest of the theater troupe or whatever would talk bad about her behind her back, this one character was, like, talking her up. She was the she was the holdout. I like this dynamic. It's a new spin on Scrooge having a negative impact on the world around him because now it's not just him being a jerk, but like he's passing that on, the trait of being an asshole to the next generation, which it's kind of interesting because you kind of see it as a cycle because, you know, Scrooge learned from Fezziwig, but I guess Fezziwig was nice. So that's not exactly the same. But anyways, I, I did think this was kind of an interesting dynamic. Right. And there was actually a little bit of that in Scrooged, where one of the things in the future is now Karen Allen is a bad person and she's like parroting the talking points from Frank. But yeah, what Kendra wants to do at the start is she's like, can you give me a transfer to our London branch? Because I want to go with my boyfriend who's moving to England. And Carol says, no, you have a future here. Don't build your life around a man. There's a lot here that you could nitpick because first of all, we're given the backstory that this was just like a small bookshop that she turned into a publishing empire. Yeah. What are they doing with a London branch? That doesn't even make any sense. A transfer. Are you in the military? (laughs) Like a letter of recommendation, maybe. But yeah, what are you? You're getting a transfer to London. Okay. I also, I mean, there's a lot of movies like this 
2012 is kind of late for it. I think of like You've Got Mail from 1999 that shows like traditional book publishers as like the big, bad, corporate, capitalistic monster that's going to consume us all. Like Barnes and Noble, the big bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> right next to Blockbuster. <laughs> In their untouchable ivory tower. Yeah. But, I mean, people tend to write stories about writers. We've talked about that before. It's like somewhere along the way, a writer is involved. And it tends to give people who write and like writing and reading an outsized role. A disproportionate number of movie characters are magazine writers or magazine editors. You would think, like, one out of every five people per capita is a magazine editor if you were to watch some of these movies. <laughs> We learned that some years ago, Carol broke up with her boyfriend, Ben, who was a writer or an aspiring writer. And I guess the reason is that she considers him impractical. Like, he's not about making money. He's not about the grind. He's happy having a smaller profile. Right. And doing what he's passionate about, not just the thing that brings in the moolah. Right. Abruptly, Eve, the deceased predecessor, shows up in the Marley role. And it turns out she's going to be all the ghosts. So it, it's going to be Eve all the time. And she's played by Carrie Fisher, who is that first name on the poster. And like you said with uh, Will Ferrell, it's just basically an excuse to have the star on screen more. Because if you have the star be just one of the ghosts, that's like maximum a third of the runtime, you know? And so if you here, if you have Carrie Fisher be Marley... Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas yet to come. Boom. Getting your, your dollars worth for casting her. Exactly. In the past that we see, Carol's mom worked constantly out of necessity. So one would think that Carol would not work all the time, but I guess it's that's what she learned, is you got to work hard to make a living. It's kind of convoluted. The explanation is more... Her life was bad because she only had low-paying jobs and didn't have money. And so she constantly had to be away from home because she was working. And so now, because money was the problem, Carol is obsessive over money. But that still doesn't quite make sense because the real problem was that she was working all the time. So it is kind of circular. And I don't know how intentional that is. And actually, that's kind of like in Christmas Carol 2004 where it added the thing that Scrooge's dad was in, like, debtor's prison. And so the example and kind of the thing that Scrooge latched onto really early was never go poor, never have debts, always be the one that people owe things to and not the other way around. We also see Carol's past life with Ben. Like, she meets him at a bookshop, and they have some conversation about how they like russian authors or something i don't know they list a lot of like exclusively male authors that they're both really into anyway they have this meet cute progress a few years down the line and they're living together and she gives him this old typewriter to write his novel on which in the present we learn that he's finally finished the novel and is like shopping it around trying to get it published including at her place at her publishing company Right. And she blows it off. And I, I don't really know why, I guess, so that she can change her mind later. And it does add a little bit of weight when you realize that 
it's not strictly pragmatism, but it's also some emotional baggage that she turns down so fiercely that first book that gets presented to her in the opening scene. And she eventually leaves, or well, she criticizes Ben for his lack of ambition. And he gets to be the one who makes the another idol has displaced me speech, a golden one, which is interesting to see it with that dynamic, that he's the one who cares less about the money. And so she's pulling out, but it's because he doesn't care enough about money. He's like whimsical and and passionate. And so it's still the same thing driving him apart, but but gender swapped in an interesting way. I feel like gender swapped Scrooges could be another sub theme for a future year. Right. Like I said, we could do a whole all four Carol movies, but <laughs> that might be a problem now. But it's on the table. In the present, we also see how the different people are celebrating Christmas. So we see the faction of employees like plotting a rebellion. There's this one outlandish gay stereotype character who I found the most entertaining because at least he's doing something. <laughs> who's fomenting revolution. We also see Carol's mom, who she doesn't have time for. She like doesn't see her very much. And we also see Ben spending Christmas with his sister. And I, I thought his sister was really beautiful. She's not in the movie very long. Like, she has got the star power as far as I'm concerned. She just, like, pops in and out. Well, and the thing is, when Carol is seeing this in a flashback, she doesn't know that it's a sister. Which, first of all, didn't you live with this guy? You figured he would have met the sister at some point. But it also had me thinking of the famous Folgers commercial, Brian. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, talk a little about that. So there's this Folgers commercial that has become iconic of um, a brother getting home, I think, from military service in Africa. And in this 30 seconds, there's like four really funny and dumb lines. But the reason that people remember it is because he gets home and his sister is the one at the door. And first of all, she's ridiculously beautiful, too. And second of all, they have like scorching romantic chemistry, like sexual <laughs> tension in this 30 second commercial, just off the charts. But it's a brother and a sister. And it's weird because when he opens the door, she says sister because they knew that, oh, wait, if we don't have her say sister, they're not going to believe that they're brother and sister. Sister. <laughs> I'll post that one in the discord. Come to the goods film yeah, and the punchline is something that she puts a bow on him and she says, you're the only gift I need. Something like that. Yes, very similar energy. But the sister is counseling Ben to try to get back together with Carol. And there's some wiffle waffling about, is that really what he wants? Does he want to get back with Carol? Then in the future, Eve shows Carol two possible futures. One, she has reunited with Ben and has a big family and in another, she dies alone, and only Kendra comes to the funeral. Because Kendra's a ride-or-die homie. This was interesting. We don't get the branching paths too often. Normally, we just get the bad future. I was wondering how a Hallmark movie was going to go dark for Christmas future. One of my favorite things about Dickens, it goes dark near the end. And I was like, a Hallmark movie can't really do that. So it kind of hedges on that where we get just the tiniest glimpse of the dark future, but also much more emphasis on this is the happy life you could have. Right. 
So Carol goes back as the changed Scrooge. And on Christmas morning, all the workers do come in. And some of them are ready to put in their resignation letters. But she is dressed in red now. And she has this big Christmas spread ready to go. So grab some cookies, grab some eggnog, and then you can go home. So that was kind of nice. I would like to be at that little gathering that they had. And she like agrees to up all their benefits, which good for you. And she gives Kendra a year long paid sabbatical. So how much money is this publishing firm making that you can just drop 75 grand or whatever Kendra is making? And the benefits are probably tens thousands of dollars, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands, depending on how big it is. It's like, damn, they must have been pulling in bank if she can just kind of do that without even like consulting the accountant, you know? <laughs> I did think that too. Everybody gets two weeks paid vacation. It's like, these are expensive things. Not quite as game-breaking though as versions of A Christmas Carol where Scrooge rips up his debt book. It's like, how are you going to pay Cratchit anymore? How are you going to make him a partner if you've just destroyed all your bank statements? I feel like you could do one or the other, but not both. Like, it's like, okay, here... Cratchit, I'm giving you, I'm making you a partner. You're going to now control 10% of the business. But also I'm getting rid of all of our money making. It's like, oh, well, now you're saddled with a crappy business. <laughs> totally. Then the workday's over. Carol's able to run off and track down Ben and reconnect. I found more touching when she went to her mom's house. It's like, because the whole thing is, well, she pays for her mom's house and her mom's stuff and an assistant for her mom. But her mom is like begging for some attention from her. Like Kendra sends a picture of Carol and signs it as Carol. And just like this one picture makes the mom emotional. So then when Carol finally appears at the mom's house as like a, it's a surprise, it's like almost a smash cut. It, it actually made me feel emotional, too. This one made me feel more emotional than Scrooge did. Yes, I actually felt happy at the end of this one. It's like, oh, okay, this is kind of nice. The you know, the way it shook out for everybody involved, even you know, even if some of the characters are thin, it's like their lives have improved. I feel some vicarious hints of joy. So true to the hallmark form that I've been led to believe, we've had this, uh, yeah, powerful businesswoman whose biological clock was ticking, and she's she's found her lower profile man. Uh, also, though, made things better for the employees and reconnected with the mom. And Carrie Fisher's job is done. All right, we got one more. No God bless us, everyone, though. That's demerits. <laughs> or God help us, everyone, as you said last year. <laughs> That's what I felt when the kid killed himself in uh, Spirited with God help us, everyone. <laughs> But okay, stretch those muscles down. We're on the home stretch. We got one last one to burn through, and it's Carol for Another Christmas from 1964. So the oldest one. And this comes from Rod Serling, who was the writer. Uh, the director was somebody named Mankiewicz. Yeah, he, he's the guy who directed All About Eve and a couple other prominent movies. There's a few big names in this. Peter Sellers is going to show up before it's done. So 1964, that was the last year that The Twilight Zone was on. And it was also the year that Dr. Strangelove came out from Stanley Kubrick. And there's a lot of shared DNA in this movie with Dr. Strangelove. 
because the main guy, the Scrooge character, is an actor named Sterling Hayden, who plays the general who goes crazy at the start of Dr. Strangelove and launches a nuclear attack against Russia. And Peter Sellers plays like every other part in Dr. Strangelove of all the people who are scrambling around to try to set things right and avoid the end of the world. Have you watched much Twilight Zone, Dan? No, I really want to someday. I know you think highly of it. Very highly. Yes. So an episode or two ago, I said everything happened to me in eighth grade. Well, in eighth grade was when I kind of discovered the Twilight Zone and just built my life in some ways around it and just Cold War media more broadly. And there's a few factors to it. I think we've talked about in seventh grade, I had the American history class every day because of the way the scheduling was. And that teacher shared a lot of Cold War era media with us. But beyond that, like my introduction to kind of edgy adult humor is my dad gave me these albums from the satirist Tom Lehrer which was like all very rooted in like late 60s political satire. And it's like, oh, this is the cool stuff that adults listen to. <laughs> is, yeah, satirical political parodies from 1965. And yeah, I just, I came to associate with, you know, I was like a 13 years old and I was learning that what you do to be a mature adult is you kind of channel stuff from this era. You kind of, you know, James Bond and and Maxwell Smart and secret agents and smoking jackets and cars with ashtrays and things. Interesting. What do you call that vibe now? Just Cold War? Isn't it like, don't they have a phrase for that? Retro futurism or something? Yeah, or like you've said mid-century a few times, but... I think of, like, all the stuff that Brad Bird loves, like Incredibles and Tomorrowland, and it seems like he's always got that Cold War era trappings in the design, even. So this is very much in that wheelhouse. It's kind of Rod Serling's thing. Of course, later on, he did Night Gallery, which was more explicitly horror. But the Twilight Zone has a lot of political commentary, and so much of it is about the threat of nuclear war hanging over our heads. So I wanted to plug Dan Carlin and his podcast, Hardcore History. He has a great episode on the history of nuclear weapons from Trinity until the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. It's like six hours long, but it's a really good overview. And he repeatedly calls nuclear weapons the Sword of Damocles. Are you familiar with the Sword of Damocles, Dan? No. Okay, so it's this parable that somewhere in the ancient world, I don't know if it was Greece or Persia, somebody else could tell you more. Dan Carlin could tell you more. But it's like somebody gets invited to dinner, and he's sitting at this like lavish dinner with the royals. But up above the table, there's a sword hanging over his head by a thread. And it's like... Can you eat your meal when you know that there's this dangerous weapon that at any moment could break the thread and fall down and kill you? Interesting. So it's the idea of carrying on life, knowing that there is this existential threat looming. That it's not 
killing you right now, but at any time it could kill you and end things. And that's what nuclear weapons are from the moment they were introduced. And even more so now that you got the H-bomb and you've got more delivery systems like missiles on submarines. And you don't even need planes anymore because the missiles themselves can fly from continent to continent. We should do a Cold War deep dive some episode, Brian. I have thought about nuclear apocalypse month. Oh, interesting. Because I have some thoughts on this, but I don't know how much it fits into a Christmas Carol episode. Although it kind of fits into this episode or this selection in particular. Yeah. And I, you know, I want to let you go home, Dan, and I want the listeners to be able to go home. So I don't want to talk your ear off yet. Maybe that is in our future. But this film was commissioned by the United Nations. They did, I guess, a series of TV films, and this was the first one, to basically parrot their party line. To espouse that the United Nations is a good, worthwhile effort and organization. And the way Seraline depicts this is, if you're talking to each other, you're not fighting each other. Which is slightly specious reasoning. I mean... That's not talking is not a de-escalation inherently. Sometimes drawing back and forth actually raises the tension, whereas just shutting up and moving on doesn't. Right. Yeah, both of the viewpoints are ostensibly anti-war. Like nobody wants a war. Nobody wants to be obliterated by nuclear weapons, but it interrogates the differences between the worldviews a little. It probably could have done a little more. But our Scrooge character is this guy named Daniel Grudge. And he's played by Sterling Hayden. I'm not sure exactly how he made his money, but he's got a big house. And what we do learn about his past is that he was, I guess, a pretty high-ranking officer during World War II. So 1964, that's 20-ish, 19-ish years after the end of World War II. And just two years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. So he had a son who also died in World War II. I guess he was like a rank and file, you know, a young soldier died in the war. And at the start of the special, Drudge is meeting with his nephew, as Scrooge is wont to do. And I guess the nephew works at a college. And he's complaining that Drudge has used his influence to make the college call off its planned cultural exchange program with a school in Poland. Like they were going to have a Polish professor come to America and I guess vice versa. Drudge said, no, don't do that. No, at this point that Poland, like much of Eastern Europe was inside the Soviet sphere of influence. So it was a communist country. And so I found this kind of timely where he's like, you academic types, you're all commies. He, he's doing everything except saying that. He's like, you want to inculcate America into the commie worldview. Yeah, I mean, this is very explicitly about foreign affairs and like cooperation, but particularly in this opening scene and even some of the later scenes, it's not hard to see exact parallels to what's going on in the political discourse today on social values and welfare programs and all sorts of hot button issues. Right. The colleges are all Marxist think tanks. And also that like the former soldier rich now comfy at home, but also still dealing with like the PTSD of his own growing up just wants things to stay in stasis and not have to confront 
all these complex, weird things that he ostensibly was able to break free from and uh, live his his cozy life. Right. So Drudge is very much an isolationist. He says something like, we should stay behind our fence and they should stay behind theirs. Like, if we didn't have wars, if we weren't always getting involved in other people's wars, my son would still be alive. And I just want to say here that this opening scene, we had just watched a Hallmark movie. So this opening scene, it's got like a real ass writer, Serling. I don't know if I've seen any of his other stuff. He can write. He can write dialogue and string ideas together in a way that are like thoughtful, but also kind of pithy and they kind of roll off the tongue. It's just good writing. And this direction is so beautiful, black and white. Like the camera has depth and focus and it shifts in artful, careful ways. And the acting is so good. The delivery, it's like very serious film, even though it was a TV movie. And I was just soaking it in. I was like, oh, this is so good. I love it. The lighting is really nice. Yeah. And consistently good cinematography. Like you said, Fred heads out. He's not the last one we're going to hear about talking, not fighting from. Everybody else in the movie says you got to talk, not fight. And you can't stay behind your individual fence as much as the isolationists might want to. Pretty soon, Grudge sees like a vision of his son whose name is Marley. His name is Marley Grudge. So that's his first name, not his surname. You know that dude was picked on in school. What a name, Marley Grudge. Star of the latest Hallmark movie. <laughs> yeah. I, I ship Marley Grudge and Emmanuel Vogier. <laughs> but I, does the son even talk? He, he just kind of like pops up as like a reflection. So apparently they initially had him appearing as the ghost it makes sense like the marley ghost that like tells him what's going to happen but there was something about the content that the censors didn't like and they cut it out so all we see is like a literally one and a half second shimmer of marley and that's it okay that's what i thought because like immediately scrooge is whisked away to the past scene where he's on this ship out in the sea out in the fog with the ghost of Christmas past who is an American soldier. And he says it's 1918, but it doesn't really matter because he also says that he embodies like every soldier from every war. So this movie is 85 minutes long. And this one, I thought it was going to be about him confronting the death of his own kid. But it's not. It's just like talking more about the nature of war and soldiers dying. There's some allusions to his son dying, but like it never really teases out more about the grudge character, which I thought was really missing, like more personal character development, because the ideas are really fleshed out and like hammered home, but not the characters. Yeah, I want to know more about him specifically and the son. But it's more about... Wars have always been fought, except suddenly we're in this weird time when if we fight another war, we may never be able to fight another one because everything's going to be gone. And we have to come to grips with that. And the way that we propose that we do that is sitting around a big table and like 
having world peace, maybe? Having peace because we have to? Uh, it's at least an entry point. And it kind of starts to stare down the question of like, well, how does that solve anything? You don't haven't actually found the peace. But the implication is talking about solutions is the first step towards building solutions. Although it doesn't really get us to that point. We do get a past scene that shows Grudge, when he was a military officer, he visited Hiroshima right after the bombing. So we get some of that nuclear horror. And they have Japanese kids who survived, whose skin was badly burned. Like they say, they don't have faces in there singing. And it's really dark. Like this is after how light and comedic everything else has been that we've looked at today. This is a heavy film. Yeah, very spooky when they see the burn victim kids all wrapped up in their gauze and veils. But also they're singing songs with M's in them, Dan. You can't make an M if you got no lips. <laughs> so I know for a fact she's more intact under there than they're letting on. But yeah, nobody wants to get nuked, basically. And this had Eva St. Marie as the other officer who is a good actress. Oh, Okay, what, what has she been in? Oh, it's Eva Marie Saint, my mistake. She's in North by Northwest and on the waterfront and a couple other things. I don't know, nothing we've talked about on the pod. Since you brought her up, it stuck out to me. I guess she's a Southern character. And so she says, A hundred thousand died in a day in Hiroshima. That's as much as the Confederates lost in four years. And she's got this ridiculous fake accent, too. <laughs> It's like, oh, yeah, what about the Union? How many did they lose? I guess we know where your loyalties lie. Apparently, she was also in the Titanic TV movie that you got me on DVD. Not Titanic, the TV movie starring Peter Gallagher. <laughs> I forgot I did that. Which I still haven't watched. That's funny. Well, I guess we'll have to toss that one on next April or something. Maybe in April, yeah. But the Ghost of Christmas present has got the typical spread of a whole bunch of food. And the gimmick there is that he's surrounded by like an internment camp of starving refugees. And Drudge says, well, how can you eat all that food and be surrounded by starving people? And the ghost of Christmas present, as he often does, is like, eh, eh, and throws Scrooge's words back at him. Like, you can't distribute food to the needy. Let them figure out how to get it themselves, yeah. You can't give international aid to the third world? Pretty much, yeah. Not quite that direct, but pretty much. Mm-hmm. And I, just again, there's not really that much to say about it because it's really just like talking about the ideas. But I used the word solemnity earlier, and that is like all of what this movie is. And it is kind of poignant, but I think I've already said this, I'll say it again, because it really is the experience is... Hearing it over and over and over again, just ideas for 85 minutes, it dulls the impact a little bit. I think this could be shorter. Or have more character development. Yeah, but the camera work is cool again, because it's like almost like walking through a haunted house or going through like a spooky tunnel of love type ride where a light clicks on and there's all these milling people in the camp, like behind the barbed wire. Yeah, it's so good. Everything about this movie looks really good, yeah. Grudge runs away from the table and winds up in the Christmas future scene. 
And the Christmas future scene is in the town hall, but the town hall is in ruins. And this is in Grudge's town. And he's like, this is where we used to meet and talk about things. <laughs> and the future ghost says, well, now the time is come and gone for talking because the nuclear war happened and everything is rubble now. And I'm sure they used some sets from the Twilight Zone. It's got to be because they, you know, they they walk out into this big destroyed town square set. And it's not completely empty. There's a few people who have survived in this post-apocalyptic wasteland. And they run out and have this, like, demented revelry. And they are led by Peter Sellers, playing a character called the Imperial Me. And he has a hat that says me on it in, like, rhinestones. I thought you would like this, Brian. <laughs> Can you describe this costume that he's got on, Dan? Oh, man. It made me think of the Mad Hatter. Or maybe like of the French Revolution, almost like a kangaroo court type thing. And I thought this was like I could I got the vibe that this was much more Twilight Zoney than anything else in this, because it was like kind of speculative, you know. Mm hmm. Is there anything else you want to say about how he looked? Well, so Wikipedia says his shirt is like a pilgrim shirt. But to me, it looked like Little Boy Blue or the painting, the famous painting, the Blue Boy. Where it's got the like little pearl buttons on this, on this like dressy jerkin. But then he's got a hat that's a cowboy hat turned into a crown. So I guess this guy embodies like twisted America, where he's got the cowboy hat and the pilgrim shirt. And more than that, what he embodies is isolationism. So in this wasteland there's like a few little cells of people and they all hate each other what do they say down the way and across the street there are other groups they know that are out there who want to talk but they're not gonna talk to them they're gonna fight them and then after we fight them we'll all kill each other so that only one is left it's like well why hasn't that happened yet you're working together as a group right now and also, it's a pretty racially diverse group. Like, there's black people and there's, like, some Polynesians. And it made me think kind of like zombies. Interesting. Where you've got this society that's portrayed as intolerant, and yet they're already, like, pretty diverse. See, my read on that was a little different because the only black people I noticed are actors who we recognize to be the people who work at the house for Grudge. Maybe there were other black people in the crowd. I don't know. But I thought it was interesting. It made me think of Night of the Living Dead when it just so happens to be the black guy who's shot by a lynch mob at the end of Night of the Living Dead. So is here the one person who is advocating for tolerance and cooperation is the black person that we have seen in the past. That's true. The the guy who is Drudge's housekeeper who is black comes out and is the one pleading for no we need to hear him out we need to have some conversation and the mob kills him and then they all run off to kill the other groups and then kill each other so very like over the top very hyperbolic but a good performance from peter sellers this whole thing made me want to go watch dr strangelove again so drudge wakes up back in his life and I guess he's redeemed. Hard for one man to, like, save the world from the brink of nuclear apocalypse. 
But what does he do? I guess he goes and he has breakfast with his housekeeper. And uh, supposedly, I guess it's like international carols on the radio or something. So kind of representing that he's more open to globalism. Right. Well, it's it's all symbolic, unlike the actual Christmas carol where a rich man is going out and distributing his wealth quite physically. Here, it's just like one stubborn old soul who's now actually listening and opening his mind. And it's difficult for him, but it is meaningful, even though it doesn't really seem like it makes a big difference. And I think the song on the radio is what the Japanese burn victims were singing. And there's a motif of songs on the radio because we see him at the beginning listening to songs on the radio and like looking kind of sad. And we know that we associate that with him thinking about his son dying because it's a 40 song that's playing on the radio. And so I actually thought, again, this was well written and kind of tied together nicely. Like the movie opens with him listening to a radio and it closes with him listening to a radio. And in both case, it's related to, to kids. But in the first time, he's just thinking about himself and his own grief. And then at the end, he's now thinking about the wider world and how it's like important to connect and share with and collaborate with the wider world and like bring them into your fold, sort of. Okay, yeah, I can accept that. And that tune, I want to know what that tune is now, because now that you mention it, you're right. And I've heard it before. It goes, na, 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 na. It's like, what is that? What's that song? It's, it's one of those things that, where it's like a melody that represents a country. You know, like if you smash cut to England, you're always going to get, Hell, Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Mm-hmm. Or like the... The the China one, you know, the na 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 Or Egypt, you're always gonna go Mexico is la cucaracha. Mm-hmm. So at long last we've got through four more films, Dan. Thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen of our Christmas Carol considerations. God help us, everyone. Yeah. So let us say whether they are good. Sure. So is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good, a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So we will start with spirited. So I'm going to give spirited a good ish. That is a four out of eight. I was leaning towards five, actually, because I was really liked a lot of the ideas it brought in and the music was peppy. I never liked the comedy, but I did like it was the music had a lot of energy to it and the production of the musical numbers was nice and I actually didn't mind spending time with Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell. I sometimes do, but here I kind of liked their performances and their presence. And I, I did like the way that it deconstructed some of the stuff that a Christmas Carol takes for granted. But then the ending really made me mad when he abruptly dies and it discards the idea that, Hey, how do we actually have this revelation of goodness? This, this redemption last. And then also it doesn't matter whether or not he's good because the niece is so incorruptible that she's not going to post the mean video about the other guy anyway. So what does it matter what he does, especially because he dies right away, like five minutes later anyways, like it's supposed to be a happy moment. But if you think about it from the perspective of that family, it's like he came, he was acting a little weird and then he got hit by a truck and died. It's like that would be a tragic memory, not like, a, oh, he finally saw the light memory. But anyways, good ish, because I, did, I was entertained by it. What about you, Brian? 
I'm also going to give that one a four because I quite like the music, especially that Christmas morning feeling song where they're describing their process. I like that we got it at the start and the end. And then in the end, you know, Ryan Reynolds is part of singing it too, because he's a ghost now. And it's like, you see what they've done over the course of the story. And then in the credits, Will Ferrell gets another song called Ripple. And it's about how, like, changing one person, you think, well, how much does that actually do? But it's about all the lives that that person touches, which is why A Christmas Carol is really significant, is it's like one person turns their life around, that can actually have tendrils out to do the world a world of good, as the ghosts say. But yeah, the humor, it rarely gelled for me, but I was always impressed by the scope. Like, this just had more money in the works than it I thought it needed. Like, there's some elaborate choreography going on almost all the time. And I think overall it's a thumbs up. I would say, yeah, go check this one out if you're into musicals and can stomach some nitpicking postmodernism. That brings us to Scrooge from 1988. So I'm kind of on the fence between a three and a four on this one because, like, it's a well-produced movie. And so that just kind of gets you a lot of the way there for, like, spending an hour and a half, you know? It's like... You can't be that bummed when there's like it's a Christmas carol and it's got cool production of ghosts and stuff and nice production design and all that actors I don't dislike. But I really did not enjoy it <laughs> like every time it was doing something, it wasn't doing the enjoyable version of it. And I didn't feel redeemed at the end. I just felt kind of gross and like, I don't know, I I like Bill Murray sometimes, but I don't like him when he's in jerkwad mode um like intense grading jerkwad mode i like him when he's a little more introspective like i think he's incredible in lost in translation groundhog day i really liked him in some of wes anderson's movies when he's a little more doing a low-key thing i'm right on a three or a four i guess i'll just land on a three just because of how much of a bitter taste it left in my mouth but it's watchable i could go four i don't know uh but three for me uh, not not good what about you brian I agree with everything you're saying. I'm actually going to give it a two. Like, it just feels mean-spirited. And maybe it was a product of the times. Like, what do they say in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme? One of them's cool but rude. That's the, the epithet that one of the turtles gets. Raphael. Raphael is cool but rude. And Bill Murray, I guess, is cool but rude. There was a late 80s niche where that was the thing. And it's going to depend on how you feel about that, how you feel about this film as a whole. I do really like the production values. Like, I didn't even say when the Ghost of Christmas Future shows up, like, the robe comes apart and the body is like a bunch of ghoulies all, like, clinging to each other. Like little latex hand puppets that growl at Bill Murray. So I did like that. But I don't really like the scrooge character and he didn't have to change very much to have a better life like he just has to gripe marginally less right to get all the good stuff and it didn't feel earned okay number three was it's christmas comma carol 
comma is not like you don't say comma when you see a comma, Brian, just so you know. Well, you don't say it's a new person when you <laughs> see one on the street. That's true. It's Christmas Carol. So it's it's a cheap Hallmark movie. The production is is very light. And, you know, like I one of my rules of thumb is I start at around a three for a TV movie if it's like nothing special. And I would give this a high end three, though. I think I actually like this. I like it for different reasons. But in terms of like telling a story, I felt a little more connected to it than Scrooge. So I'm going to say it's not not good. It's not it's not bad. It's an enjoyable way to spend it. It doesn't transcend its Hallmark roots. But like to me, that's kind of like a default, easy to watch movie. Like I kind of ragged on them a little bit, but like I don't mind watching Hallmark movies. They're fun to watch or they're easy to watch, let's say. So I'm going to go ahead and give this one a not, not good. What about you, Brian? Yes. Same page, three out of eight, where it kind of improved for me as it went along. When I saw that set, like the lobby of the publishing place at the very beginning, it just looked so cheap. I was wondering how I would feel by the end, but it charmed me somewhat. You know, I felt good for the characters at the end. It was silly. It was light. It was thin. But overall, it wasn't too bad. Okay, and Carol for Another Christmas. What are your thoughts? I'm a little conflicted on this one, too, because, man, was I just, like, intoxicated by it at the beginning. It's just smart, and it's it's intense, and it's it brings something that I've never seen in a Christmas Carol before. I really like that it's thinking about how we take the concepts of a Christmas Carol and applying them into the more global world, especially like now more so than Dickens's times. So much of like our politics is tied in with other nations and so much of the way we live our lives and the ethics of what we do is tied in with the rest of the world. And I found that really poignant and it's just very sharply written. And man, is it, it's one of the most beautiful TV movies I've seen just in terms of like the cinematography and the, the black and white lighting and even the direction is nice, even though it's kind of stagey and play-like. It's like a few simple sets and scenes, but it's just all done so well. The problem is that it just it's too long and it never like deepens, I would say. Uh, maybe a little bit. It like does some variations on stuff. But once you've gotten through one of them, you kind of have the idea. I mean, the visuals get a little darker, like when you get the ending is kind of weird. But at that point... It wasn't telling me anything that it hadn't already pounded over my head. I thought that it would pivot to something a little more character based, but it just stays didactic the whole time. So I'm like at a high five good, almost a very good, but not quite at a very good just because it loses steam. I might feel differently if I watched it again, bump it up or maybe I'll be even more down. I don't know. But I'm just like right on the, the fence of a five and a six because there are so many things I liked about it. But just as a experience it ultimately ends up kind of boring because it's so long and just so talky so we'll say five good yeah i'll be a little more critical but all the same talking points essentially i'm going to give it a four because the production value i've said that a lot these recent episodes is high things look great it's clearly written by a skillful writer and performed by pretty high profile actors it's very of the times and yet manages to still comment on things today because nuclear weapons are still out there. World conflict is still out there. Some of these things are are 
problems, conflicts that we talk about today. Like, it could be ripped from the headlines. But it's too long, and you never get away from the fact that it's a commercial for the United Nations. Like, it's not subtle about that. It's like, why don't we go down to the United Nations? <laughs> You know, it's it's almost like somebody's holding up a can of Coke or something, but it's the United Nations. Product placement. There's a joke about product placement in Spirited that I also kind of liked. Sephora is what it is in that. Oh, yeah, that they got like a Sephora in the afterlife. And, oh, no, it was that it was in the uh, tableau that is presented. And it's like, that wasn't there when I lived this. It's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. That was funny. I also laughed in Scrooged when, you know, they're emphasizing the role that TV plays and their ghost is taking Scrooge through the scenes and explaining that they can't see us. He says it's a rerun. <laughs> um, if if I could find that hat, I would be Imperial me next Halloween because that hat <laughs> is something special. <laughs> and that would be like a very obscure Halloween costume. Yeah, yeah, it's a cowboy hat, but it's cut into like a jug head from Archie Crown, where it's got the little felty flaps. Well, that was a good 150th episode, Brian, so I guess it's on me to select the next one. Yes, you're the Imperial me this time, Dan. So I'm going to pick, I haven't seen it, but I know all of this director's movies are set at Christmas, and that is Shane Black. And... I will be selecting Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is, I think, a comedy slash crime movie. I really don't know anything about it, except that it's supposed to be very funny and that it's probably set at Christmas. This is actually one that is one of the handful that I have on the list of like movies I could pick for the good some days back from the start. Like a few of those have come up. Now it's Christmas time. That's what I'm going to pick. So Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Cool. I haven't seen this one. I never would have guessed it was a Christmas movie from the title. I guess we'll have to see whether it is or not. If it meets the Die Hard test. <laughs> All right. Is Bruce Willis in it? That's the Die Hard test. <laughs> is it a Christmas movie? <laughs> we could talk a little bit about that next week for sure. So, Sure. Okay, well, looking forward to it. I know this was a long one, but it's always fun to watch more and more and more. Christmas carols. It felt fitting for a big episode like 150, and I thank you for joining us, listeners. Thanks, Brian. Have a good one. Bye, everybody. Bye.